Morning, Crosswalk. Morning. Morning. Good to be here with you. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming to church today. Really appreciate that. Do I have my clicker? Do I have? I do. Okay. Um, so sorry I wasn't here last week. However, I was um, in Chattanooga. We were celebrating their five-year anniversary. Amen. Is that? That's, yeah. No, we can clap for that. Um, it, it was really incredible. They had over a thousand people there worshiping together and it was just a really great weekend. And, um, one of the things we get to do every single month is we do what's called an all campus call. Um, so all our campus leads from all our campuses and our love world groups get on the same phone call, zoom call. And we, um, we talk about what's going on in all of our different places. And man, I got to tell you, God is God is good and God is working through the Crosswalk Church as it continues to grow and con- continues to um, make inroads into areas that we didn't know we could, we could be as far as um, building churches. And so uh, I just want to thank you for your support and all that sort of thing. It is, the monthly reports are just really exciting to see everything that God is doing in new places and new campuses. And we're actually, we've actually, you know, we've, we've prayed to God for all this opportunity and now we're praying for God for like wisdom and to slow it down a little bit. Because we're like, God, your abundance is amazing. Maybe too much, too much. We need to figure out how, how to do this because um, it's such a new thing, at least for us. So, um, so thanks for being a support of that, coming and worshiping here, but also being part. You tell your friends that there's campuses in other places. We've got some people here today from Portland, I know. I met them already, which is really exciting. So it's cool to be able to, you know, get T-shirts from different um, campuses. I think that's why we go to other campuses. Um, <laughs> That's why I go. I don't know why you go. Um, no, in fact, I got a new one on Wonder from last week, which is really cool. It was clean when I got up this morning. So I was like, I will wear that. You don't care. You don't care how I pick my clothes. It's not really part of the sermon. Today I'm talking about uncomfortable diversity. So if you feel uncomfortable at any time, good. That's what we're trying to do. That's kind of the whole idea of this. And diversity, listen, look around. We're a diverse church. Amen? Yeah. No, it's incredible, honestly. It's amazing. And all of our campuses are like this to some degree. Just an amazing amount of diversity and amazing, which is phenomenal. It's funny to me, the diversity has become like a trigger word for certain people. Like, oh, diversity. I grew up in in the shadow of La, I made that sound really poetic, in the shadow of La Sierra University. (laughs) I mean, it was down the street. Um, but they, on their seal, they have the words, from diversity, community, which is beautiful. So I grew up with that word. I was really comfortable with that word. I do seem to think, I don't know if this is true, so don't fact check me on this. I could have sworn it was from diversity, unity. And then somewhere along, they changed, along the line, they changed it. But I could be wrong on that. So if you know, if you have, nobody cares. I don't know why I'm talking about this stuff. Are you with me? Okay. So looking at all our campuses, um, we see just an incredible amount of diversity. It's really one of our strengths. Um, And it's funny because people are like, oh, crosswalk, like you have to do things a certain way. And yeah, that's kind of true. Like our worship kind of recognizes what campus you go to. It's going to be somewhat the same within reason. I'll tell you this though, when I was in New England a few months ago, I can't remember the last time I was there, but when I was there, they were doing a song that we've never done here and they did it so well. I was like, huh, I don't know that we could do it here at Redlands, which is a challenge to my worship people. 
but they have a worship leader out there. His name is David Hunt. And he at one point just leaned back from his keyboard and just wailed, man. And it was beautiful. And I was like, well, that's different. We don't do that here. Right? We, even, though, even though there's a lot that's very much the same, um, because of our process, our campuses themselves are incredibly diverse. Because there has to, but there has to be an organizing principle, right? Diversity works when there is an organizing principle. And you've heard me say this before. I'm sure you'll hear me say it again. For us, Jesus is the organizing principle, right? In the midst of a myriad and diverse group of people, our organizing principle maintains and is still Jesus. And this goes beyond anything else. It is the beginning and the end of the conversation for us. For, for those few moments that we're together, we are together in Christ. And we can, quite honestly, put things aside. And sometimes we have to because we don't all agree on stuff. That's the beauty of diversity. Sometimes we don't agree on things because we have different worldviews. Sometimes we don't agree on things because we come from different socioeconomic realms. Sometimes we don't agree on things because we have different colors of our skin and we've experienced the world very differently. And that's okay. You know what? That's absolutely fine. But when we come in here, the organizing principle is Jesus. Not that those other things don't matter, but it gives us space to put things aside and be together and worship and grow community. Because what we do is we can find a common culture in Christ. Now, does this diminish our differences? No. But it gives us that organizing principle that will allow us to spend more time together in worship, in fellowship, and in mission. What that means is that when we disagree with one another, we know one another. And when you disagree with someone you know, it's very different than when you disagree with someone you don't know. Right? Because you have to pay attention to what they're saying, even if you don't like it. This is the problem with the internet, is that you can disagree with a ton of people who you don't know and weirdly feel like you've accomplished something. Right? You get on, there's somebody who posts something you don't like, you go after them, they go after you. At the end of the day, you're like, that's great. It, it didn't help really anybody. Nobody made any inroads into anybody's thinking. But hey, at least you got to like vomit onto the internet. When you know people, those conversations change. And as long as the organizing principle is Jesus, we'll get through it. So the question is, should we acknowledge the differences Right? And absolutely, we can, we can celebrate our shared history. We can also lament that history as well. We can know that our history is different for different people groups. And we can learn to be sensitive and empathize with groups that have experiences that we don't necessarily understand or haven't experienced ourselves. And we know that diversity is something that God's interested in. How do we know that? Well, we can look at diversity in Scripture. But kind of before we get there, what we have to do is we have to kind of work our way back. Because, and, and again, I feel like I repeat myself a lot, but, but it's important for us to know the, the narrative that we've gotten in the Western world is very different than the history of Christianity. So one of the things we have to do is we have to push back on some assumptions that we make. That Christianity kind of flew through Western Europe and became the predominant culture and the predominant narrative. That it, um, you know, it... Ultimately, it built empires, it sent crusades, it did all these different things. Um, but that's only one of the histories, and it's an incomplete history of where God was working. 
Because God didn't just work west. God worked to the east for 1,400 years. The eastern church was dynamic. It was robust. It was integrated into the societies that were there. And listen, I had someone today tell me they bought this book. It's called The Lost History of Christianity. It's amazing. They bought the book, and he's like, I'm not a reader, and I'm in. And I think that's a huge, a huge, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? A huge uh, referral. Like that. Endorsement. That's the word. Thank you. Who said that? Whoever said it. Thank you for endorsement. It's a huge endorsement of a pretty dense book. But what it does is it talks about the fact that God didn't just look west. God looked east as well. And we saw Christianity spread. And it spread in different ways and different manners to many different groups of people. And in fact, God worked through many different groups of people. So sometimes the predominant narrative that we have about Christianity, we have to realize is a part of it. And of course, an incomplete history gives us an incomplete narrative of God working in the world. God did not and has not simply worked with the Western European narrative. God has been at work in all times and in all places in ways we can't even fathom. Christianity has this kind of wonderful and terrible historical narrative in the Western world, but even more interesting in the East. But so we can get rid of our, kind of those assumptions that God worked in one direction and realize God was working all over. But the question we have to ask ourselves when it comes to diversity is do we believe that God is working through different people groups? And that seems like a really easy question to answer on a Saturday morning. Yes, of course. Why would God just work with us or people who look like me or who act like me or have the same descent as me? Well, when you... When you make this as your assumption that, yes, God is working through people that I don't even know, well, then you got to treat those people differently because they're being used by God just as much as you are. So why would God do that? Why would God use kind of universally, why would he use all these different people in different places? Well, it's simple. It comes from Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, let us make man. I say this all the time. It means that we are all image bearers. We are all image bearers of the image of God. I want to break that down so you understand what that means. What it means is that when we look at one another in all of our beautiful diversity, we show one another the image of God. Other people look like God to us. That's what the image of God means. And in that, we should find beauty in everything, right? Is this reflected in Scripture? It is. It is. And we're going we're gonna to get to that in a second. But one of the things, I, you know, it's important for you to know that when I speak of diversity, I, I hope you understand that I'm not speaking just like from the predominant Western narrative because I'm not reflected in the biblical account of Scripture, right? I was grafted on because I'm from Europe. That's where my descendants come from. So the narrative that we see in Scripture, when we talk about diversity, it's actually diversity that doesn't look like diversity in the church. It's actually a much more Semitic diversity. It's around that region. That's the beauty of the incarnation, right? God came at a particular place, to a particular time, to a particular people group, to a particular religion, to a particular gender, so that we could understand who God is a little bit more in the vast universal understanding of, of humanity as gods. We, we have to understand that the story that we read in Scripture is 
a model of how God works in the world. So when we think about diversity, like I said, we have to think about the image of God first. But the Old Testament has a myriad of cultures represented. So if you're just like using cultural and geographical boundary makers, such as things like language or territory or religion or dress or appearance or even ancestral origins, the ancient peoples in the region and around ancient Israel can really be split up into four major ethnic groups, right? So they were these. They were the Asiatics or the Semites. This includes the Israelites, the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Aramaeans, and some more. Then you've got the Cushites, and you see the Cushites all over the Old Testament. These are black Africans living among the Nile River south of Egypt, also referred to as Nubians or Ethiopians, even though they're not connected with modern Ethiopia at all. Then, of course, you've got Egyptians. They were certainly around. And these are a mix of Asiatic and North African and African elements. And then, of course, you've got the Indo-Europeans, which would be seen as the Hittites and the Philistines, right? They don't have a great narrative, by the way, in, in Scripture. So that means at the dawn of the Israelite nation, the descendants of Abraham are a mix of Western Mesopotamian, Aramean, Amorite, Canaanite, and Egyptian elements, and looked very much like the Semitic peoples of the Middle East today, such as modern Arabs and Israelis. So this is why when you see a picture of a white Jesus, it's a little weird. And I hope that's not like triggering for anybody, but you should know, <laughs> right? I'm, I, I, it's, it's a little weird, right? But here's the thing. I understand why someone would paint a picture like that because we want Jesus to be like us. More so, we want to be like Jesus. And so we're going to see Jesus through our own eyes, right? That's okay as long as we don't negate the real narrative of Scripture, and we know that God was actually okay with a great bit of diversity, even within the Israelite people. In other words, they could, they could marry outside of the Israelite nation. And I know you're thinking, well, wait a second, there's a lot of, there's a lot of prohibitions against that in the Old Testament. But let's just take a look at Moses, all right? Moses intermarried a lot. Moses had seven wives. Do you know that? It's like we just missed that part of it, right? Moses had seven wives. He had Zipporah, who was a Midianite. He had a Cushite wife, right, which comes from Exodus 12.1. He had seven wives altogether, and they weren't all from the Israelite nation. Now, was this okay? This, is, this actually is worth explaining. I know it's a little bit of a rabbit trail, but it's worth explaining because there are some prohibitions against intermarrying in the Old Testament. However, that intermarrying prohibition is not actually ethnic. It's religious, Right? Because there, there is this inter-ethnic prohibition. Um, so was Moses violating these commandments? Not at all. In fact, in the Pentateuch, right, the prohibition against intermarrying with other groups always specifically refers to pagan inhabitants of Canaan. The reason for this prohibition, therefore, is theological, not race or ethnicity oriented. Right? That's important to know. Right? Because they didn't want to marry these pagan peoples. Because, And it says it in Deuteronomy 7.4. God warns, they will turn your sons away from me to worship other gods. So it was a theological prohibition. It was not a racial prohibition. It was not an ethnic prohibition. 
Because God knows, hey, you're all made in the image of God. And when you recognize that image, you guys can be together. So intermarriage was fine as long as, as it was within the same faith, right? And I'm not going to comment more on that. It's just, it's interesting. Because I've heard over the years talking about unequally yoked and ethnicities and that sort of thing. And I think we need to be careful with that. Um, because, well, I just think we should. Um, so I thought we'd, we'd lean into the story of Abimelech. Um, because Abimelech was a foreigner who was saved by God and did some saving. This comes from Jeremiah 38, 1 through 13. I'm pretty much going to read it straight through. I think it's pretty self-explanatory. We probably don't read a lot about Abimelech, um, but we should because his name is super fun to say. All right? So it says this. And by the way, he comes from great stock. Now, Shephatiah, son of Matan, Gedaliah, son of Peshur, Jehukul, son of Shelemiah, and Peshur, son of Melchizedek, heard what Jeremiah had been telling the people. He had been saying, this is what the Lord says. So he's quoting God. Everyone who stays in Jerusalem will die from war, famine, or disease. But those who surrender to the Babylonians will live. Their reward will be life. They will live. This is Jeremiah saying this to Israelites. The Lord also says the city of Jerusalem will certainly be handed over to the king, over to the army of the king of Babylon, who will capture it. So these officials are upset about what Jeremiah is saying, because it doesn't sound very pro-Israel at the time, right? It's kind of going the opposite direction. So these officials went to the king and said, sir, this man must die. That kind of talk will undermine the morale of the few fighting men we have left, as well as that of all the people. This man is a traitor. So King Zedekiah agreed. All right, he said, do as you like. I cannot stop you, which doesn't sound very kingly. He's like, well, I guess you're going to do what you're going to do. Go ahead. So the officials took Jeremiah out of his cell and lowered him by ropes into an empty cistern in the prison yard. It belonged to Milkajah, a member of the royal family. There was no water in the cistern, but there was a thick layer of mud at the bottom. And Jeremiah sank down into it. Now, if you've ever been into a cistern, you know that the mud at the bottom of a cistern is really like silt. So it's really sticky and it pulls him down. So, but there's this guy, Abimelech. He's an Ethiopian. Remember, not modern day Ethiopia, but he's an Ethiopian. An important court official heard that Jeremiah was in the cistern at that time the king was holding court at the Benjamin gate. So Abimelech rushed from the palace, from the palace to speak with him, to speak with Zedekiah. My Lord, he said to the king, these men have done a very evil thing in putting Jeremiah the prophet into the cistern. He will soon die of hunger for almost all the bread in the city is gone. So the king told Abimelech, take 30 of my men with you and pull Jeremiah out of the cistern before he dies. <laughs> Zedekiah's like, yeah, whatever. I don't know what you guys are doing. I guess that sounds fine too. They were under siege, so it's a bit of a, a trying time for him. So what does Abimelech do? He takes the men with him. And they went to a room in the palace beneath the treasury where he found some old rags, discarded clothing. He carried these to the cistern and lowered them to Jeremiah on a rope. Abimelech called down to Jeremiah, put these rags under your armpit to protect you from the ropes. And um, then Jeremiah was ready. When Jeremiah was ready, they pulled him out. So Jeremiah was returned to the courtyard of the guard of the palace prison where he remained. So God used Abimelech for the salvation of Jeremiah in a very practical and literal way. Later on in the story, what we know is that God saves Abimelech in the midst of the siege as well. See, you know these boundaries that we live by? All these categories that we have? 
all those things that divide us, you know God doesn't see those, right? God doesn't look at the world from heaven and see a map with borders. What he sees is a group of people that are made in his image. And he loves every single one of them. Now this becomes difficult when you're praying for your football team to win. Right? Because you know that your jersey is the one that should win. That, that leads us down a whole other rabbit trail theologically about prayer, which we're not going to do today. But because you do, you pray. You, you pray that everybody beats the Cowboys. The point being, God doesn't see us the way we see us. God looks down and sees his image that he placed in us, in each one of us. And so the diversity that we see just celebrates who God is. And then we see in the New Testament that they are constantly crossing ethnic lines with the gospel. In fact, it's one of the central themes introduced in the gospels and brought to the forefront in the story of Acts, that the gospel is for all people and all ethnicities. Luke and Acts in particular are primarily concerned with developing this theme of Gentile inclusion and the crossing or obliterating of the cultural or ethnic back boundaries between people with the gospel. And I'm so glad for that because that's when my story starts as the gospel spreads through the world. If you're not sure about this, just think about the Samaritans. You know, there's a bunch of reasons why the Israelites didn't really like the Samaritans. One was because back in Jeremiah's time, when there was this exile, the Samaritans didn't go. They all took off from Jerusalem and went to Mount Nebo and were like, we're good. We're not going to go with you to Babylon. So when the Jews, the Jewish nation came back, they were very upset with the Samaritans who were now worshiping on Mount Nebo. They were no longer worshiping in Jerusalem. This is why the woman at the well, she asked Jesus, hey, where should we worship? On this mountain or in Jerusalem? And Jesus is like, wrong question, Jerusalem. See, what we see in the narrative is that Paul's goal and Jesus's goal seem to be to build an, a multi-ethnic church. And then we have it all wrapped up in Revelation. And I mention this all the time, that there's you know, people from every nation, kindred and tongue, that's everyone, who are all singing the same song together, but probably not in the same language. And they're all singing, glory be to God in the highest, God who was and is and is to come. And they're singing that just over and over and over and over. So how do we continue, how do we, as a modern day church in North America, how do we continue in this tradition? Well, I gotta tell you, I feel like I'm preaching to the choir because you do it already. You sit with people that don't look like you, that don't, that don't eat the same food as you do, that come from different economic strata, that come from different ethnicities and different cultures, and you allow the organizing principle to be Jesus. And then you invite other people to come to church because we want more input from more people about what it means to be a church that is deeply diverse and finding community. See, I'm blown away. And people are blown away when they come to Crosswalk because they think that, like, oh, Crosswalk, that's a, that's a young adult church. And I'm always like, yeah. 
then don't look around. Not that you're not all young adults in heart. I'm not pointing at anyone in any direction. This is really dangerous right now. The point is this. I know there's people in this congregation that would like the music to be different or would like us not to do this or to do that. I, like, I get it, but you've put all those things aside so that you can be with a group of people where the organizing principle is Jesus. So thank you for being here. Thank you for saying, you know what, I'm not gonna know a stranger. And thank you for looking for the image of God in every single person that you see, no matter who they are, no matter where they come from. How do we continue in this tradition? by making sure that even though this church is as big as it is, you are taking the time to meet people outside of your sphere. You are taking the time to meet people in the row ahead of you or the row behind you that you don't know, that you didn't come to church with. I think we should reinstitute the idea of asking people to lunch after church, right? People that you don't know and say, hey, you wanna come over to my house or let's go out to a restaurant, let's go eat together. I don't know you, you don't know me. We may not like each other by the end. <laughs> maybe, don't, maybe don't start that way. Feels like a weird way to start the invitation. But we can acknowledge that. But, but like getting to know people that would be diverse in your life. And by that way, you're recognizing the image of God in them. You're growing your sphere of influence. And then you, and you guys do this really well. You know what you do? You invite people to come and be part of this community of belonging. And you say, hey, you're gonna be accepted here. And I bet there are people who come with you who say, well, I don't, I don't know, will I? I don't know if I'm like that church. I don't know if, you know, but when they come here, they are welcomed and they belong. And praise God for that. So that's how we continue this tradition of a multi-ethnic, diverse church. I just wanna say thank you. Thank you for seeing the image of God in one another. Let's continue doing that and let's bow our heads. Lord of grace, thank you. Thank you for, for embedding that in us. It's incredible. Lord, may we not forget that. May we never be comfortable when the spaces and places that we're in look too much like us or sound too much like us, let us always be seeking diversity so that we can build that unity and that community. Lord, let us be uncomfortable because even in our discomfort, we find comfort in you and that can transcend and make us into a community of belonging. Lord, let us celebrate the diversity within our congregations and within our lives, knowing that we come together from all these different places and different spaces and different languages and different cultures. But we come here to worship you as our God and Savior and our organizing principle. So Lord, grow us, but grow us together towards you. In your name I pray, amen. Stand and worship with us one more time.